Good morning again, everyone. I'd like to welcome you again to worship, especially those of you who are in the traditional service or those of you joining us online. It's good for us to study the Word of God together as a church family. And this morning, as we get started, I'd like to ask you a question. Have you ever had an experience in life that turned out to be very different than how you thought it would turn out? I know I've shared this story with some of the youth in our church before, and I thought I'd share it with you this morning because I once learned that lesson a really hard way, that our experiences uh, are really can be very different than our expectations. When I was in college, I was a part of a leadership team of a Christian group, and we were planning some ways to reach out to our friends on campus. And we were discussing and brainstorming different ideas about how we could do that. And one of my friends in this meeting proposed the idea, let's plan a paintball trip. And so we all thought it was a great idea. So we started planning this paintball trip and we decided that we were gonna rent this big Hummer military truck and rent out this paintball field about 30 minutes from our college and invite our friends to come and have a great time and we're gonna talk about the spiritual battles in life that we all face after we played paintball and we just thought it was a great idea. So we get all dressed up and I paint my face and I'm ready to go play paintball and on the way there while I'm in the military truck, I realized one thing. I've never played paintball before. I actually didn't even know what paintball was. I had an idea in my mind of what paintball was, and this is what I thought it would be like. For those of you who don't know what paintball is, that's okay. I'll explain in a moment. But what I thought paintball was, was a game where we had a big field, and on one side of the field, there was kind of a bucket of big paint-filled balloons. And maybe, you know those bounce house balls that you see at like uh, restaurants or kids' play areas? Kind of like this is a princess ball I borrowed from my daughters today. I thought of it kind of like this. There might be a ball filled with paint, a balloon filled with paint. And these buckets were just filled with these big paint balloons. And on one side of the field, a team would gather and then they'd go and they'd throw these paint balloons on the other team. And the, the team at the end of the game with the least amount of paint on them won. I thought it was going to be a great time. Well, little did I know when I stepped off the truck, there would be a cadre of men standing there with shirts on that said, I live for paintball, paintball is life, with semi-automatic weapons. <laughs> and what I learned is that paintball is a game with these little teeny pellets filled with paint. And you wear a mask and you run through the woods. Literally, I was running for my life because I kept getting hit with these things. I was unprepared. I wore a cutoff t-shirt. I had sweatpants pulled up to my knees, and when these paintballs hit you, it felt like my flesh was being ripped off, and I was a big target running through the woods, okay? I think in the first half hour, I was hit 50 times. It felt like a bunch of bees stung me, and I was so mad and frustrated, and I was holding my arms in pain and agony. I think I might have looked like a leper from what I know of what they looked like. And I was sitting in this tent with my friends so frustrated and dejected and just thinking to myself, this is not what I expected paintball to be. Man, and so because I'm competitive, the story gets a little bit better. I decided that I would still try to win the game and I could convince my friends to follow me to the other team's fort to get their flag. And the game, point of the game is to get the flag back to your side and you win. And I thought maybe we'll get hit with a few more paintballs, but at least we'll win. And I was really competitive, so I was set on that. And so I got my friends to come with me. I remember I was crawling towards the fort and the signal was going to be when I said go, we were all going to run together. And they might get me, but they might not get all of us. 
And so my friends are behind me about 10 yards, and I crawl forward, and I say go, and I get up and run, and what do my friends do? They wave at me. (laughs) And so now I'm running towards the fort on my own, and I dodge a couple paintballs. I hit one of my friends. I'm feeling good. I go to grab the flag, thinking victory is in my hands, and then in the corner of my eye, I see Darren Hickman three feet away from me, and he shoots me right in the neck from three feet away. So I fly backwards at this point in time, holding my neck. I'm on the ground. I was hit with a red paintball, so I'm not sure if it's blood or it's paint. But fortunately, I see Darren out of the corner of my eye coming to check on me and make sure I'm okay. And then he shoots me again. (laughs) This time, right in the backside. So now I'm holding my backside and my neck And I'm just thinking to myself, this is not how things were supposed to go. This is not how I expected it to be. And I learned a tough lesson that day that our expectations about life have a big impact on our experience of reality. And I think a lot of us learn that lesson in life as we grow up too. And I think this time of year and the Christmas season, a lot of times things don't go the way we expect. In our mind, We think of Christmas as a season filled with joy and the Christmas spirit. Our houses are beautifully decorated. The lines at the store are not that long, and everyone in our families just get along. When we come to church, our kids are sitting quietly and just singing the Christmas songs, and we give this nice picture of Santa Claus with our kids that we can send around, and then reality hits. And we remember those family gatherings can be kind of hard, sometimes even a little bit lonely. Our kids don't sit very still at church or with Santa Claus. And when we go outside to put up the Christmas lights, it's a lot colder out there than we remembered, right? I had a friend this week, I was looking at Facebook, and he posted a picture of a child and their experience with Santa Claus that I wanted to share with you. If we could put that on the screen. (laughs) You know, our expectations don't always match up with reality, right? And we can laugh at that in the Christmas season, but in our lives, when there are more important things at stake, it can be a little more painful and difficult, right? Have you ever had a paintball moment in a relationship, in your career, where a situation or a relationship in your life is just a lot harder and more painful than you expected it to be? Where you're trying to make sense of, how did this happen? Wondering, why has this got to be so difficult, so painful? I think most of us have had experiences like that in our lives where our expectations don't match up with reality. And on a spiritual level, I think it's easy for us to wonder, especially in relationship to this idea we're talking about today, that Jesus is the king, that he's in charge. If our lives are so difficult and things are harder than we expect. Where is God? How can we trust that he's really in charge? How do we make sense of our experiences when things can be a lot more painful than a lot of times we expect? I think this morning in the gospel reading that we just looked at, the disciples had a very similar experience. They're in a moment where they're wondering, how could God be in charge right now? Things were going very differently than what they expected. It's a moment in Jesus' life where he actually looks least in charge. If you want to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke in chapter 23, you can find it on page 1547 in your Bible if you want to turn there. 
This is a very important moment in, in Jesus' life. And here's how it goes. He was taken to stand before Pilate, the Roman leader of Jerusalem. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah, a king. Now, this might not sound like a very serious crime to us, but the charge of opposing Caesar and claiming to be king in the first century was very serious. Everyone knew there was one king, and he led the Roman Empire. And there was a place for people that claimed to be king. There was a cross. And so this was a serious charge being leveled at Jesus. And Pilate seems to think this whole situation is rather beneath him. So he sends him to the other leader of the time, Herod Antipas in Jerusalem, the leader of the Jews. And so when he arrives at Herod, Herod's actually pleased to see Jesus. And here's what happens. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he had been waiting to see him. From what he heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief, chief priests and teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him, dressing him in an elegant robe. They sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends before they had become enemies. From earlier in the Gospels in Luke 9, we know that Herod had heard about the miracles that Jesus was doing, and he wanted to see him. And so finally, he got his chance, and he wanted to be entertained by Jesus performing the sign for him. When Jesus doesn't do what Herod wanted or expected him to do, Herod doesn't have much use for him either. No, Jesus has never been much for meeting the expectations of people that are just looking to be entertained by him. And so Herod passes him back to Pilate. And in this scene, there is nothing here that looks like Jesus is in charge. He's being passed around as a common criminal. He's being mocked and insulted, a robe being put on him and being made fun of as the king of the Jews. They're laughing at him as another failed Messiah. The leaders, the people in power that used to be enemies are now becoming friends. And Jesus, he has no army, he has no group of followers. All of his friends and followers have abandoned him and, and scattered. There's nothing here that looks like he's in charge. And for his followers, the ones who aren't even in this scene, they must have been so confused because they really believed that Jesus was the Messiah. They believed he was the king. And they couldn't make sense of this in terms of their own expectations. And it's helpful to understand a little history here at this point, because in the first century, there were some very clear expectations of what the Messiah would do. When we hear the phrase, the kingdom of God, we often think a place that we go after we die. But in the first century, there was a real expectation that God was sending a king to establish his kingdom on earth and to kick out these Roman leaders from power and to restore them to the kind of kingdom that God had started long ago, all the way back in the time when he delivered his people from Egypt and brought them through the wilderness into the promised land of Israel. This was a, a land that was described flowing with milk and honey, and they flourished there for a time. There was a temple in Jerusalem that they believed was the seat, the throne of the king of heaven and earth. 
where they were worshiping him and serving him, and where his presence could be a light to all nations. I think it's easy for us to underestimate how real that this understanding of God is king and Israel being the place of his throne was in the first century because we live in America. I didn't understand it until I actually went to Israel and I saw the places where these things happened. And you see the ruins of the temple and the place where they understood the Holy of Holies to be and the place of God's throne. They actually talk about it like it's the fifth gospel. The Lamb speaks to you about the story of Jesus in a new way. And so they were expecting this king to come because there was a time when he ruled from Israel and they flourished in the land. But then God did something they never expected. Because the kings of Israel rebelled away from God and became corrupt, after generations and generations, God allowed foreign armies to come in and take them out of their land. The Assyrians and then the Babylonians came and they took them, the Israelites, God's people, out into exile. And their expectations and their land were dashed. The temple was destroyed. And they experienced a lot of pain and disappointment. Most of the Bible is written during this time. And the Psalms, the book of prayers in the middle of the Bible, it contains about 77 of 150 books are laments of God's people crying out to God, grieving their loss, wondering where God could be in the midst of their disappointment and their pain and even disillusionment. Because in exile, they found that they could trust that God was king, that he was in charge, that he was there even when everything else fell apart. But in exile, God also began making promises. Promises that this pain they were experiencing was not the end of his plan. And so he promised to send a king to kick out these foreign rulers and to reestablish the kingdom of God. And so when Jesus shows up announcing the kingdom of heaven is at hand, repent and believe the good news, people flocked to see what he was doing. Great expectations were being fulfilled. People dropped their nets and they followed him. And when he rode into Jerusalem the last week of his life on a donkey, the crowds hailed him saying, Hosanna, here comes the king. They believed the time was at hand and the kingdom of God was finally going to arrive again. So you can see why the disciples would be so confused when Jesus began to tell them that he was going to suffer and die on a Roman cross and three days later rise from the dead. This was not a part of the plan in their mind. This was not what they expected to happen. On the night before Jesus was betrayed, when he shared the Last Supper with his disciples, you can see their confusion. This was the clearest teaching Jesus gave them about what he was going to do. He even gave them a meal to explain it, that this bread was his body being broken for love for the world, for forgiveness of sins. And they were to take and eat it and be strengthened by it. And the cup of wine was his blood being poured out for the forgiveness of sins, to show the people of his great love for them. And they were to drink it and take it into their body to strengthen them. But they still didn't understand. After he shared that meal with them, here's what happened in Luke chapter 22. It says, A dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles, they lord their power over you. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. 
For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my Father conferred one on me. Jesus is telling them that he did come to establish the kingdom of God, but in a different way than they expected. And the disciples couldn't see and understand this because of their own expectations of what the kingdom of God was supposed to be like. But Jesus loved them enough to teach them. While he walked the earth, he didn't spend his time gathering a Roman army or promising his people positions of power or trying to win over the rich and famous to spread his kingdom message. He spent time with ordinary people, inviting them to follow him, teaching them about his vision of the kingdom of God and showing them what it was like to live with God in charge of the world. And this often reshaped and reformed their expectations of what God's kingdom was like, even though they were slow to understand it. When we read the gospel stories, we see Jesus saying things like, the kingdom of God is like. All of his parables often begin that way. Or you've heard it said, but now I say to you, trying to reform their expectations. He would teach them what the kingdom was like, and then he would show them. He would teach them that God loves sinful people, and it's not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. And he didn't come to call the righteous, but sinful people to repentance. And then he would go and spend time with a tax collector named Zacchaeus in his own home. And after Zacchaeus spent time with Jesus, this person who was sick with sin and taking from his friends and his, uh, his, his own people and stealing money from them, now had a heart for generosity and blessing and serving those and righting his wrongs. Jesus would teach them that the kingdom of God belonged to the children and the least of these. And then he would spend time healing the sick and caring for the least of these. When the disciples saw a little child and thought that Jesus was too busy for this, ch this child, Jesus would rebuke his disciples and grab this child and put him on his lap and say, unless you change and become like one of these little children, you can't enter the kingdom of God. He would teach them what the kingdom was like and then show them. And now here as he stands before the people in power of his day, being mocked and insulted as the king of the Jews, another failed Messiah. Jesus had told them that this was his plan, that going to the cross and suffering and then rising from the dead was the way he was going to bring the kingdom of God. And now he shows them. And he's showing them that he came to establish a different kind of kingdom, a kingdom that can't be conquered or controlled or contained by the kingdoms of this world and by the corruption of leaders who rise and fall. He's showing them that there is a kingdom available to every human heart by faith and belief that he has come for you. He's showing them that he could take the worst pain and struggle and suffering that this world has to throw at him and bring victory over the powers that we can't defeat, sin and evil and death itself, restoring us to our relationship with God the Father. And so when Pilate was nailing Jesus to the cross, condemning him, thinking that this kingdom was over and he could get back to business as usual, Something new was starting. Jesus' kingdom was just about to give birth in a new way. 
And those Jews, those, his first followers that were confused and their expectations seemed dashed, just a short time later began going around the Roman kingdom saying that this king is no longer dead, he is alive. And that nothing can separate you from the love of God for those who believe in his name. Writing to some of the first Christians in Rome, Paul says this. He says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In the next few centuries after Jesus rose from the dead, the Roman Empire didn't know what to do with the movement of Jesus. To them, it didn't seem like Jesus was in charge. But these people began going around saying that Jesus is in charge. They began gathering into communities to learn to do the things that he said to do. They welcomed anyone regardless of their social class or their ethnicity or their gender. They valued the children and the orphans and they took care of the poor. When Rome was struck, struck with a terrible plague, they took care of their sick enemies, even at the cost of their own lives. They kept living like Jesus was in charge, even when it didn't look like it. And the remarkable fact of history is that within 300 years of Jesus' death, the Roman Empire began to fall apart, the most powerful empire in the world. But the kingdom of Jesus began to spread to every known corner of the planet. What had previously been known as a sign of Roman power and torture, the cross, now became a symbol of hope and of God's love, that even the worst things in this world could not separate us from the love of God. And 2,000 years later, this message continues to change people's lives. It continues to teach people and teach us that God is in charge even when he doesn't look like it. It's one of the things that we want to impress upon our young people and why we try to go and do service projects and mission trips. And just this last week, we went down to feed my starving children. And we just spent an hour of our time packaging up meals to send to places where children don't have enough to eat around the world. And I remember hearing the story of one of the children's lives who has changed this. Actually, this person's name is Moses, and he lives in Haiti. And I brought a picture to show to you guys. Moses was found on a trash dump in Haiti, abandoned and neglected. The forces of this world had given up on him. But a follower of Jesus found Moses and took him to an orphanage. And after just a few weeks of eating meals from Feed My Starving Children, you can see what happened to baby Moses. His life was restored. And now he's six years old. I have a daughter who's six years old, and this is him with his big smile. And one of his hopes and aspirations is to become the next uh, president of Haiti. And we don't know what's going to happen with his life, but we know that he's learned that God's in charge, even when it doesn't look like it. And we need this kind of hope in our lives. Because the reality is, all of us are going to experience difficulty and disappointment and struggle and pain in this world. I have another pastor friend that likes to say there's three kinds of people in the world. There are people who are going through something difficult, people who just got done going through something difficult, and people who are about to go through something difficult, but they don't know it yet. 
And the good news of the gospel is that God is not afraid of our pain. That God is not absent when we go through struggle and difficulty. That he's there with us. We don't have to go through it alone. That we can cling to the presence and the promises of God as we go through the difficulties and the struggles of this world. A few years ago, actually a number of years ago now, life goes pretty quickly, doesn't it? A friend of mine gave me a gift that helped me when I was going through a difficult time. It was a time when things weren't going like I expected them to go. Some of my relationships and circumstances in my life were much more difficult than I expected them to be. And I was trying to make sense of that in relationship to God. And so he gave me this present. It was called a clinging cross. And I hold on to it very often. You can see a picture of it there. I actually don't have mine now because I like to give it away when other people are going through hard times. Because he told me that you can just cling to this as a physical reminder of God's love and presence with you. And I found as I cling to the cross of Jesus, as I'm going through difficulties and struggles, that he begins to reshape my expectations. I remember that I'm not in the center of the world. That God is in charge even when it doesn't look like it. And that it's better for my heart to trust him rather than just trying to trust my own strength to get through it. And he also shows me and reshapes my expectations that often the way through problems is a lot harder than I often want it to be. That there are crosses to carry in this world and difficulties to work through in relationships that often don't feel good, but his cross shows me the way to love. To not give up on those around me and to continue to offer the hope that God's in charge even when it doesn't look like it. And the world needs that kind of hope. We all need that kind of hope because our hearts need to trust that God is the king. And what he showed us on that cross 2,000 years ago is that he is in charge, even when it doesn't look like it. And when we cling to him, we become a different kind of community, a community that cares about the brokenness and the pain of this world, like the king who offered his life for us that he fills us with his love and strength to say to the world, there is a king who's in charge and you can trust him even when it doesn't look like it. Let's pray together. God, I thank you that you've come to offer your life for us, to show us that we can trust you, that we can trust you through our disappointments and our struggles and our pain. And Lord, for those of us here who are really in difficult stretches right now, relationships where we're not sure how they're going to work out, situations that have not gone the way that we expected. I pray that our hearts could cling to you and find the hope that only you can provide. And I thank you, God, that on the cross, you defeated the powers that are stronger than us, our sin and death, that you promise us a kingdom that will never end, that we can be a part of now as we trust you as king. Lord, we ask for you to meet us in this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.